Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad you're listening to our sermon series titled Summer in the Psalms, where Pastor Ryan will walk us through the Psalms and how we can use them as godly reflections to look backward, look around, and look forward to strengthen our walk with God. Thanks for listening. When you have something serious to talk about with somebody, you'll soften the blow, won't you? And the technique is to sandwich it. You know, you a smile at the beginning and a smile at the end, and you kind of lay the hammer in the middle. You know, you, know, you might say something like this. Listen, listen, um, I know you really want to do a good job, and, it's, and you seem like an honest person, but I really, need you, I, I really need you to work when you're at work. I mean... Being on Instagram and being an influencer is important, but what I need from you right now is I need you to influence these tables and get them clean and take these orders so you're fired. You see, that's not what you see right here in Psalm 51. What we see right here is there's a serious struggle going on. And the psalmist is writing about something that requires some immediate attention. There is no elephant in the room right here, Psalm 51. I like to say this is a get to the point type, get to the point type of psalm. Are there any people in here that are just like that? Just, just, just to get to the point. Don't mince words. Just, just what are you trying to say? That's what's going on right here. See, Psalm 51 was written by King David to the choir leader for the nation of Israel so that they may remain on the road to worship. That's our big idea. That's our big idea this morning, getting back on the road to worship. Getting back on the road to worship. And I use the word worship because that's what God wants. God wants unhindered worship for us to say he's worthy of it all. But at the same time, here's what's amazing. What's amazing is how, 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 we, how quickly we forfeit feeling free to worship by giving our allegiance to things not worthy of our worship. It's maddening, isn't it? How you can, how you can that the speed at which a Christian can go from singing praise in the morning and then trying to hide in the evening. It will, I, I don't know about you, maybe I'm preaching from, from where I am from time to time, but it, it's maddening to me how how passionate and how intense my walk with the Lord is one moment and the next moment I just don't feel like he's worthy of it all. Well, I'm glad you're more spiritual than me, okay? <laughs> Leave a pastor to dry. Psalm 51 is a personal experience. I mean, it, 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 is, it is probably one of the best known of the Pentance Psalms. Pentance means the act of feeling or showing sorrow or regret over having done something wrong. It's a state of mind of remorse for something done which is later recognized as unjust or sinful penance. It's where we get our word penitentiary. It's where, it's where you go and you sit and you think and you contemplate and you ponder how you have wronged a particular authority. In the case of a penitentiary, it's how you've wronged maybe a family 
or maybe how you've wronged your debt to society. Psalm 51 is a place where David is just sitting in penance because he is facing a wrong against the Lord. It is the most personal glimpse of the greatest stumble of a king who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. This was God's man for God's chosen nation that would pave the way for Jesus. And he's locked up by regret. That's where he is. And according to the title, we know why he's so locked up. We know why he's showing so much sorrow. There's a wall in his worship. Anybody ever been there? There's just a wall there. You feel like your prayers just won't get anywhere. You feel like you come in here, everybody else is getting their praise on, and you feel like yours are just getting slapped in the face by the ceiling. That's where David was. His worship wouldn't go anywhere. He felt empty, felt alone, like there was this huge wall between he and the Lord. What, have, what could have possibly caused such spiritual separation? Well, I'm glad you asked. God's word tells us. Let's look at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Y'all turn slowly. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. So remember, all 150 Psalms are a reflection of a time where somebody in the nation of Israel was looking back, looking around, and looking forward to all that God wanted to do for their life. And so what David is doing in Psalm 51 is he's reflecting on something that happened in his past. Something that had created a wall. Second Samuel. Chapter 11, verse 1 tells us that look back moment. It says this, in the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officials and all of Israel. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so one evening, David got up from his bed and he strolled around the roof, the palace, for the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. And so David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the, the Hethite? And David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he slept with her. And now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant, not good. Verse 6. So David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. See what he's sandwiching it? Rascal. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace and the gift from the king followed him. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all of his master's servants. He did not go down to his own house. And when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come home from a journey? Why didn't you go home to your wife? Verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemies were. Man, what a glimpse. That's the context of Psalm 51. What David has done is he neglected his responsibility as the leader of the army, not being where he should have been with the boys. Amen. He abused his position as king by committing adultery. Some even say possibly as even, even as much as rape with a completely innocent Levitical law-abiding woman. And then he attempted to cover it up by first bringing Uriah home to his wife. And when Uriah was too loyal to be that selfish, David had Uriah intentionally put back on the front lines of the battlefield to be killed. Wow. What a, what a web woven right here. It's been said that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that is exactly what's going on in David's life. But God. Amen, church. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us. See, despite all of these things, David was God's man. You may say, Pastor, how can he be God's man at times when he didn't act like God's man? Catch this, because our salvational position isn't conditioned by our effort to perfectly maintain the relationship to God be the glory. It is a free work of the grace of God, lest any of us shall boast. See, God didn't leave his standard of holiness he made a way to make us holy in Christ that was not dependent on our performance. Grace wins. Amen? In Psalm 51, it's what happens when God snags the heart of a true believer and they long to get back on the road to worship. When God lays his hand, establishing an everlasting, long-suffering, omnibenevolent, omnibenevolent, covenant with somebody to be with them always to never leave them or forsake them he will see to it that the road to relational recovery is always made available this message is for somebody this morning i'm convinced the love of god is too great for him to allow a child of his to stay down forever and david felt like he was unable to come safely into god's presence because the shame that was hanging over his head See, if you're unable to lift your hands completely unhindered in worship because of a, a selfish stumble, man, I've got some good news for you this morning. Because we always, all of us have selfish stumbles. But when God has laid hands on you, he can restore the road to worship again. He can restore it. And that may be you this morning. That may be the truth that you need. Maybe not. Maybe you know someone that needs to hear this word. Will you soak it in and you make the notes 
and you go out and you preach it with your life to them. Take the gospel to somebody that needs to hear it. He did it for David. He absolutely did it for David. What, what God did was God sent a messenger named Nathan, a prophet, to, to call David away from the shame of the stumble and back to pure worship. Again, we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 8. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse... <clears throat> I'm sorry, starting in verse 1. Look at this. Don't miss it. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who is in pursuit of David's worship? The Lord. He's God's man. So God made the step. God made the move. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small lamb that he had bought. We all like a good story, don't we? Has a way of drawing you in. That's what Nathan's doing. He couldn't just come out and, and talk to the king. He had to pull the king in. He had to expose the, the heart of the king. He had to tenderize it to the truth that was applied. He said he raised her. She grew up with him, with his children. From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. In his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5, David was infuriated with the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and he has shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. Verse 7, and Nathan replied to David, you are that man. Tom, I need some ice for the burn. This is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Verse 13, David responds to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Here's what I want you to know, church. Praise God that 2 Samuel moments are not the end. Amen. Psalm 51 is how we move beyond those 2 Samuel stumbles. Yes, when you stumble, there's going to be some sick sin scabs. There's going to be some deep scars. But here's what I want you to hear, somebody. The wound of a stumble does not have to be a worship-ending amputation. God's grace is sufficient. And the steps that David took to get on the road to worship again still apply to us today because the word is eternal. It will always stand. And so what applies to the heart of David, a man after God's own heart, 
And Psalm 51 will absolutely meet us here this morning. Break down that wall of worship. So here's what we see. What are the steps from Psalm 51? There was an honest confession. An honest confession. Look at verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. An honest confession. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Admission is not the same thing as confession. If you got kids, you realize it. It's just not the same thing. There's important differences. See, I believe <clears throat> admission usually comes with an asterisk. Like, like you know, it, it means, it means that, that it carries something a little bit more. It's not exactly the way it appears. Most times, admission is followed by the word but. Right? Yeah, I said that. But they. Mom, yeah, I did that. But he. Everybody else jumped off a bridge. We just, well, it depends. You see? Yeah, yeah, I went there. But we. See, that's admission. That step leaves out healing because you can't delegate accountability. That's not what we see David doing. What we see David doing right here is not admitting. He is confessing. Confessing is owning the error against the Lord without placing the blame on somebody else. That's what we see. So you can't help your kids diagnose what kind of day they had unless they give you something to work with. This drives me nuts, especially with the girls. I'll pick them up and I'll say, um, hey, how was your day? You had a pretty good day at school? And they'll say, yeah, okay, I guess. I'll be like, well, well, what's going on? They're like, I don't know. So your day was rotten? Yeah. Well, well what made it rotten? What happened? Well, nothing really. Are you serious? I mean, how many times do we go to the doctor and the doctor's like, my goodness, you look awful. Tell me what's going on. I mean, I don't know. I just kind of got this sort of small, big thing, you know, maybe caught, I don't know, maybe not. I really don't know. What do you think? No, you can't, you can't have something properly, properly diagnosed and applied healing unless you get everything out clearly, right? You got to get it out there. See, we may want to be in the hands of a great physician, which is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And we want to feel the tender spirit of God again. But any type of denial or diversion, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt knowing God close. And what David does is, is he confesses exactly what he did. There was no other avenue to blame except himself. He was laying bare before God, which is the only honest place to start if you're going to reconnect. I want you to catch this, church. That's the only honest place to start if you're going to reconnect with the living God who wants a living, active relationship with you. It's not admission. It's confession. Y'all write this down. There might have been others involved, but it was God whom he had willingly stumbled away from. 
There might have been others involved, but it was God whom he willingly stumbled away from. And once David's keen sense of righteous indignation had been turned on himself, he recognized that he, above all, had broken the heart of God. Just look at verse 3. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion. Y'all catch that? I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. The word conscious in Hebrew is the word yada. It means to know. It means being personally acquainted with. That's where we get the term yada, yada, yada. You know, if someone's telling you something you already are personally accounted, um, accustomed to or acquainted with, what do you might say? Yada, yada, yada. It's like, come on. I already know all this stuff. Clearly, I already know it. That's the idea here. So, so he acknowledged that the distance between him and God, it was all him. He owned it. He had to because it was eroding his soul. And yada is not a casual admission of wrongdoing. Uh, it, it wasn't an attitude of, yeah, okay, so what, but. No, it was, it was, it was a lament that his sin confronted him all the time before God, he couldn't get it out of his mind. He couldn't get it out of his, out of his heart. He couldn't get it off his hand. It was sucking the worship from his life. And he was miserable. Let me tell you what's taking our culture by storm, and it's this. Y'all, and you know it. We live in a culture that promotes a profound sense of denial about biblical concept of sin. If you think about it, the only sin that everybody agrees on today is calling anything that I'm doing sin, right? I mean, when the only virtue is tolerance, we've lost it all. You can't judge me. I, I absolutely can't, according to God's word. When it's done in the right heart, for the right reasons, that's truth. And if you're going against objective truth, I have every right to say what you're doing is not right. It's not good for you to eat crayons. You can't judge me. Don't eat crayons. You can't run red lights. The law says you have to stop at those. Okay, try that next time you get pulled over by the police. You can't judge me. Yes, I can. I have the full weight of the authority of the state of Georgia to apply to your driving record. Why do we not operate like you can't judge me except when it comes to the things of God and his word? It's silly. It's, de it's deceptive. Here's what I want you to know, church. I am not intolerant. I'm in love with the king of heaven who sent the standard for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control because I could not keep the standard. And so what David was doing is he was naming his shame completely and unfiltered because he wanted complete and unfiltered healing so he could worship again. He wanted to be able to lift his hand and say, you're worthy of it all. And what we see is he was God's man. He had a stumble, but his heart was still sensitive to the things of God. And something else I want you to see is there was a confession. This was in no way Bathsheba's fault. This was in no way Bathsheba's fault. 
In the past, I've heard pastors and Bible teachers imply that Bathsheba was somehow in the wrong. Like she should have, like she should have known better than to tempt the king with a careless and modest shower. That is, a, that is a westernized reading of the text. That is not the context here. This may be the first time you've ever realized this. Maybe you thought that to yourself. Somehow, the, somehow there's a shared blame there. What's well, not? See, first, the text never says she was naked. In fact, the, the Hebrew participle bathing, it has a variety of meanings. Washing up has a variety of meanings in the first century. And also in the century this was in. In the Jewish Hebrew culture, it was, it was bathing any part of your body. It could have been your feet. could have been your hands. could have been your face. It could have been your body, but not necessarily. For example, if you come to the house and, and uh, you know, we're about to have supper, and you're like, hey, do you mind if I step into the bathroom and wash up for supper? I don't think you're going in there taking your clothes off to wash up for supper. You're going to wash your hands, right? You're going to wash your face. You have to know the context there. Secondly, it doesn't say she was in the open. Never said that she was out in the open. In verses 9 through 13, the, the phrase go down, it appears four more times. It, it, it means she was more likely to have been in an enclosed space in the privacy of her own street-level traditional home with, with little to no reason to suspect that there was a peeping Tom with a lustful heart above her. Think of the high-rise hotel in Atlanta. Have you ever stayed in one of those and you, know, you pull back the curtain and you're standing at the window, but you can look down and you're like, oh my word, I can see into all of those rooms right there. So you just look ahead you know, and you look up and you realize there may be somebody in a, in a building higher than you looking down on you. So what do you do? You make sure all the, 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 the space around the curtains closed. Y'all, is that just me? That's the idea. Buildings had different levels. And third, it, it doesn't say she had malicious intent. In fact, it says she was purifying herself according to the Old Testament law so she could worship purely at the temple again. And so back to Psalm 51. Look at verse 5. David says, Indeed, I was guilty. I was guilty when I was born and I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. You teach me wisdom deep within. See, the heart is open to worship again when we recognize that we have this, we have this natural bend away from worship. But our heart is opened again where even if we understand that we have this natural bend, we desire to bend more toward God than to the flesh. What I'm saying is fight the bend. And when you fight the bend and you want, as David says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and, and you teach me wisdom deep within. He wants God to help him fight the bend. You don't have to teach your kids how to be selfish or how to steal or how to be liars. It's an inner self that's a natural bend. And see, David knew the danger of a worship wall. 
And what he knew was that worship wall was imputed at personhood at conception. Does the Bible speak about life at conception? Yes. Here's one of them right here. Psalm 51. At conception, as life begins, the nature is imputed. And he was worn down and he was wore out from carrying all of this. That may be some of you today. You just worn down and wore out because you feel like your worship is just not recoverable. Now I want you to know that just as David found freedom, we have freedom here today. It still applies. It still applies. I had an epiphany this week. Just I feel like God kind of peeled back the layer of me to him a little bit, you know. And I go through seasons like that where, where you know, I, I think, I've never thought about that before. God, thank you. Thank you for, for still helping me understand me a little bit more. And it was kind of a rhetorical question. But I just simply just rhetorically asked the Lord, Lord, why did you put me in vocational ministry? And it was a, it was a rhetorical question, but he answered. I felt it. I felt the answer just come out of me in a way I've never experienced before. And this is what I feel like the Lord said, because your heart is rotten and you're too stupid to be a criminal. <laughs> that is the God honest truth. You can ask Debbie. I told her that. I said, I think I know why God put me in ministry. She thought she was waiting for this, this, this moment. She's like, tell me. And that's what I said, didn't I? God just told me I got a wicked heart and I'm too dumb to be a successful criminal. And so he holds on to me. Keeps me in his word. See, David wants to be set free from the distance in his worship. So there's an honest confession. And what is his desire? His desire is a radical transformation of his inner self. Lord, save me from me. So that he might live with God's perspective and God's strength and God's wisdom. He wanted to be the person that God made him to be. And he wanted to worship again. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. And that's what makes you a man after God's own heart. Or a woman after God's own heart. Old person, young person. Not old, chronologically challenged. But all of us are God's people. And so that's what we see. Verse 1 through 6. There was an honest confession. There's something else. Here, write this down. Something you can hang on to. There was a believable cleansing. The two go together. There was a believable cleansing. Look at verse, look at verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt. This might be one of the most famous verses in all of God's word, Psalm 51.10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. What we see right there, that is a believable cleansing. He believed it. He believed God could do it. 
He believed God could kick down the wall that was robbing his worship. He believed that the only way he could worship again was only if God would forgive him. No earthly effort would do. So the word wash me means purify me. Hyssop. Hyssop was, was this fluffy plant that grew on the walls. And it had branches. That, so the hyssop plant would, would be taken and the leaves would be plucked off. And the branches would be used to absorb the blood in the temple of the doves. And they would use the hyssop branch to, to sprinkle blood of the sacrificial gift given onto the mercy seat so that the sins would be forgiven, the sins of the people. And he's saying, wash me with hyssop. Make me clean again. When the Lord confronted Israel's apostasy, the prophet Jeremiah, what Jeremiah told the people is there's no amount of physical washing that can make them happy again. It was, it was only of God. Only God could perform the inward cleansing necessary for restored fellowship. And that is still true. If God didn't make you right, you can't put it on, you can't, you can't take it off, you can't buy it, you can't apply it. Anything this world has to offer. If you aren't, if you aren't forgiven and believe you're forgiven in the eyes of God, there's nothing that will provide true happiness and forgiveness on this side of the cross. And he doesn't use anything that comes to him already put together. God uses broken things to make his glory known. That's what he wants. And this is gold, church. This is gold because David wanted God to blot it out so that he could feel like himself again. Spiritually, he wanted him blotted out so he could feel like he, he himself again. Mentally, emotionally. I understand the value of medication. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, if you, if you love chili dogs for too long, you're going to need some blood pressure medicine. But I can't help but to think that some of the physical sickness that are created and carried in the doctor's offices are a result of a sin stumble believed to be too big that God can handle. So you carry that stuff around. You carry that shame around. You carry that stumble around. And it absolutely makes you sick. Sin will make you sick after a while. You begin to just add more earthly remedies over and over and over until you just are completely messed up. And God says, I just want you to have an honest confession. And you believe me for forgiveness. And you move on and be done with that junk. Y'all write this down. When you believe right, you think right. And when you think right, you begin to do right. And the longevity of doing right feels really good. You'll begin to feel right. To feel right, if you circle back, you've got to believe right. That's where David was. He had a believable cleansing. Paul talks about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace. Are y'all with me? The God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
believe right and feel right. Because he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. See, not only is God working in our lives, but Paul is confident that what he's doing is he's calling us to stay the course. God never starts a project he doesn't intend to finish. That can't be said so much of me. That's why our honey-do list kind of grow and grow, right? But as you believe God for forgiveness and cleansing, it begins to manifest itself in the way you feel about your physical body. You have more energy. You have more pep in your step. You don't feel downtrodden. There's peace. There's a lightness. That's why you hear things like, when I accepted Christ, I felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. When I realized that God's mercy is new every morning, the stumble of yesterday doesn't find me today, and I'm able just to, I don't know why I feel so happy. It's because you've taken it and you've laid it at the feet of the Lord, and he's lifted that off of you. What we do so often, we just put it on and we carry it. And then we complain because it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. What I'm saying is, I want you to confidently expect that when the Lord does the washing, we will be whiter than snow. Expect it and believe it because that is the, that's the position that you're in. Salvation is not a feeling. It is a position. And when you have placed yourself under the cross, you are in a new, white, clean, forgiven position. Now move on with that position. Move on with it. This is about to get good. But you may be asking yourself, Pastor, God just can't forgive it, right? I mean, that would mean God's not just, right? How can he just let my junk slide? The bank doesn't do that. My mortgage company doesn't do that. My credit card can't. My student loans can't. We're not going to go there. The world doesn't operate like that. How can God operate like that? How can God, how can God just, just let my junk slide? I'm free. The, the burden of guilt has to go somewhere, right? You're right. He can't let it slide. That's good theology. God can't let it slide. It did go somewhere. You know where it went? To the sun. It went on his crawl. It went on his back. It went on his, his broken body for you and for me. Every, son, every sin ever created, every sin, crea- every sin committed, and every sin that will be committed was paid for on the cross. See, in the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the blood applied. Now we're looking back to the blood applied, but the blood is always applied. We, don't, we just don't get a free ride. It went on to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a memory verse if you don't know it. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, because of the cross, on the cross... God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. But because of the cross, he treats us like we live Jesus' life. That's called the great exchange, and that'll change your life. That's the gospel. And so when you ask God to clean it, and you believe that it is done because Jesus said so, it is done. 
We might be free to struggle, but we are not struggling to be free because of the cross. The last word spoken of our Lord Jesus on the cross was what? It is finished. I'm talking about heaven kissed an earthly rock that looked like a skull of death. Golgotha. Heaven kissed it so that we could go free. He kissed death and shame in the wall of worship. Goodbye forever. So why do we carry that stuff? Why do we carry it? Because the worship road that we're on, it's already been paved. It's finished being paved. It's paved with the blood applied. You don't have to live in that broken place anymore. Amen, church. There can be something new out of nothing. If you don't believe God on that, you can't believe God on anything because this entire book is a hymn book. It's all about him. I said that last week. It's about God's faithfulness during uncertain times. It is about God's rescue for people that could not save themselves. So he came to us. That is exclusive of the Christian faith. You're not going to get that worldview anywhere else. And what David is saying is, I need that character built on the inside of me, and I need that to come out. Look at verse 12. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Sustain, help me, hold me up. Give me my worship back and hold me up so that I never lose it again. He was broken, which means there's no, there's no blemish that can be seen again, not even by God. If God didn't forgive him, then the wall still stood. But he believed it. That's what David did. He had an honest confession. And he expected God to do it. Because grace is the essence of our good, good father. Not a piece of who he is. It is who he is. But those are the third thing. How do we get back on the road of worship? Well, an honest confession, a believable cleansing, and then a renewed calling of purpose. A renewed calling is how you get your shout back from last week. A renewed calling of purpose. Am I preaching to anybody out there? Man, I'm glad I'm here to hear this. I'm just going to say it. A renewed calling of purpose. When you bust down the wall of worship that's been holding you back, you can't help but just want to worship again, right? Gives you your zeal back. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. He's like, I'm going to be on mission. I'm going to go out there. Verse 14, so save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't want a sacrifice, or, or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humble heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifice, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, what you see right here is that David understands 
that if the things are going to change in the house, in the church house, in the nation, if, if God is going to apply the movement of the gospel to a larger group of people, like the nation, it has to start from inside of our own hearts. And he is, he is begging the people, don't ever forget it. I heard an old farmer say, the water's not going to clear up until you get them hogs out of the creek. That's what's going on right here. David is telling, David is telling the people. He's writing this. It's by David. It's to the choir director, but it's for the nation. The nations will read this over the, a long period of time to be reminded that if they want, if they want the movement and the power of God to happen inside of their of Zion in their nation, they've got to remember where David went and what David did. Get how to how to get back on the road for worship. I live this. I live this. It, it, it's a moment that I, that I thought back, and, and this is the moment that I remember the, the, the wall of shame of the worship before God, maybe the first time ever. It was in 1992. It was in 1992, and I was a fourth grader at Danielsville Elementary School. And when you would go to lunch at my elementary school, there was this long corridor, and there was one small door that led into the lunchroom. And so naturally, there would be a long line of everybody working their way in that small room through the hotline into the cafeteria. And right before you get to the door that led into to the, to the, to the, to the lunchroom where you would get your plate, they had this brown cabinet. It had shelves, but it had no doors. And this is where you would put um, stuff that you don't want to take to the lunchroom. Maybe it was a hat. Maybe it was a thermos. Maybe it was a backpack. Maybe it was a coat. So all the kids would just stuff their stuff there so it was stacked up. And so here I am as a fourth grader standing in line. And I look over, and something catches my eye. It's a black hat. And right on the front, there was the number three written in white. And on the side, written in red, it said this, Intimidator. Dale Earnhardt, baby. And this was 92. I mean, this, this was, I mean, NASCAR was everything. Y'all, y'all, some of you guys got wrapped up in that. You know, you had your Earnhardt guys and, and you had your Rainbow Warrior guys. I mean, they, those guys got rich off that. It was, I think the whole thing was playing. But, but, but I wanted that hat. I was a fourth grader. That hat was a fifth grader's hat. So this was risky. And so what I did was, I began to lust after that hat. And I began to scheme after that hat. And that hat even had a little gold pin on the other side. I had to have it. And so I went over there, and I took that hat, and I stuffed it under my coat. And as soon as I did it, my peace was gone. I mean, even that, I, mean, I remember this as a fourth grade. I couldn't enjoy my lunch. I was paranoid. I slipped out of the lunchroom, went to my backpack, transferred it from my coat into my backpack, and went to recess. I loved it. You live for recess. You know what I'm saying? That's where legends are made on the playground. But I couldn't enjoy recess. I couldn't enjoy my lunch, and I was hungry. And I'm out there in a place of complete peace, which should have been peace and fun with my friends, innocence. I couldn't do it. Because I was watching my back. For, not only was I out on the playground, 
But the fifth grader's right there too. You know what? Somebody came up to me and said, Hey, did you take my friend's hat? And I lied. And it got worse. And the shame, I don't want to trivialize it because it was real in my heart. I began to, I began to feel that there was, just, there was just this wall being built. I had no idea what it was, but I knew that the wall was between me and my creator. Even as a fourth grader heart, I, I felt the wickedness there. I felt the shame. 92. Got home. Went upstairs. Took it out of my bag. Couldn't wait to put it on. But you know what? I couldn't even put it on. I couldn't even look at it. And so I stuffed it away. 92 rocked on to 93. It's just in my closet. 94, it's in a drawer somewhere. I would see it. I just could not shake it. And then in 1995, I was exposed to the gospel. And I accepted Christ as Savior. And you know one of the first things that God brought to my mind the day of my salvation? It was that hat. That hat. Here I am, a sixth grader. This happened in four. I'm a kid. But you know what I did? I asked the Lord to forgive me. I asked Him to take that shame and, and that guilt away. And He did it. I believed Him for it. I have no idea where that hat is. I have no idea. I wish I could go back and make it right. I wish I could find that kid and apologize. Because in that moment, as a, when, I, when I accepted Christ, I began to have, I, I began to, to, to feel what that kid felt. To walk out and to, to look in that cabinet and not see his hat there. To go home and maybe it was a gift from a granddaddy. Maybe it was a gift from a, from a parent. Maybe it was a, 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 you know, something he had earned money for and he had paid for it. You know, I began to walk in his shoes. I began to, I began to have compassion for the, for the pain that I had applied to his life. It's what David did in Bathsheba. He owned it. It was an honest confession. He believed it. But you know what? As soon as I accepted the Lord and I asked him to, to forgive me, I felt like that wall of worship was opened again. And I could move on. I could live again. I could live again. See, I was stuck. I was a fourth grader that was stuck. Jesus set me free in 95. And I want you to know, if you're stuck this morning, God can set you free. You can believe it. And you can go out of here and you can live with a renewed zeal. That's where David was. He, he could freely worship again because he had offered himself to God as a living sacrifice again. His heart was clean. He believed God for forgiveness. And he had liberty and excitement to serve the Lord again. And he wanted the whole nation to do it along with him. So I'll write this down. We're almost done. God does, not edit our, God does not edit out our stumbles from our lives. He repurposes and he redeems them for his glory. I know you got some stumbles. I know you've got them. But the Lord will never say, you're going to... Re- Give me the redacted version. Can you go back and... Clerk, record, can you remove that from the record? No. He doesn't remove those stumbles. Because of his goodness, he will repurpose and he will redeem them for his glory. It's, it's, it's our story. 
for his glory. If God would bust down the wall of worship, what David commits is he commits to give God abundant public praise. So he's begging God, you bust down the wall of worship. And God did it. God did it. You know what? He took Bathsheba as a wife. There were consequences. They lost a son. But he didn't let that amputate his worship. He moved on. He faced the consequences. He faced the consequences, but it didn't define him. It didn't destroy him. And what I want you to know is what the psalmist is telling us is you will have a new song to sing again for the world to see. You believe, did you hear what I said? You will have a song to sing for the world to see because that's the goodness of God. And that's what David is saying. Each member is linked together in a web of relationship. What David wanted for his own life, he wants for us too. And what is that? Confession, liberty, forgiveness, so that we can together serve God in prayer and praise. There's some people tired of being sterilized and paralyzed by guilt and shame. I get it. But there is an unfiltered and there is an under, unhindered access because of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. God doesn't want you to be sterilized and paralyzed in your praise, hitting the wall of worship. He wants you to lay it down. Stop being intimidated by the guilt and the shame. Take the scars on them. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Believe him for forgiveness. And then move on with a shout of praise so people can see what God's doing in your life. Life with purpose. The purpose comes from the person of Jesus. Psalm 51. That's how you get back to the word, the road of worship right there. Let's stand together.